Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, we meet a teenager using poetry to make sense of the childhood years he spent separated from his dad. It's like not being able to recuperate or function when they're not around, because you're always looking for them. You're wondering where they are, what they're doing, are they thinking about you? And how Asian-American actresses frustrated with stereotypes in Hollywood are trying to carve out something new. It's pretty much Master of None meets Girls meets Big Little Lies, but with five female Asian Americans. Plus, we meet a refugee from Eritrea who struggled when he started high school in California. When I just came here, I realized that I felt like uh, so lonely. We'll hear how he found his voice at a unique summer camp. I'm Sasha Koka, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. This week, we've been hearing about tearful reunions between parents and their kids along the U.S.-Mexico border. But the family separation crisis is far from over, with hundreds of families still in limbo and others just now beginning to process the pain of their time apart. That pain could linger for years. We've been bringing you stories about the long-term impacts of childhood separation. We've heard about a Native American woman forced to attend boarding school and a woman left behind in the Philippines as a toddler. Our next story is about how kids cope when a parent is incarcerated. Arvon Williams' dad was locked up on and off for years. Arvon's 19 now. He's found solace through spoken word poetry. I used to dream about the man that put me on his shoulders while we dip off in the mountains and catch fish on the boulders. I never thought my words would relieve you. I never thought that you loved me, but in a stupid sense, I almost believed you. He shared a story with KQED's Laura Clivens. When Arvon thinks of his father, he's overcome with emotion. On the one hand, his eyes sparkle when he talks about his dad. It's like Aaron Williams was a celebrity, a charming, good-looking guy everyone wanted to be around. Every moment with him was surreal, and I don't mean to, like, overhype that. So whenever I would see him, we would go on these over, you know, overzealous experiences, lavish trips to the mall, trips to the amusement parks. But then there were the bleak stretches when his dad was behind bars for reasons adults kept hidden from Arvon. His dad would be gone for months once he was away for three years. Sometimes Arvon knew where his dad was. Other times he didn't. He'd call him and talk to his voicemail. His dad wouldn't call back. It's like being high constantly and then crashing when they're away. Like And then like not being able to recuperate or function when they're not around. It's because you're always looking for them. You're wondering where they are, what they're doing, are they thinking about you? Arvon's parents split up when he was a toddler. 
He spent his childhood living with his mom in San Francisco. His father had kids with other women, so Arvon felt he could never get enough attention from his dad, even when he was out of prison or jail. It made those few moments with him feel like fireworks. Like the time he showed up at Arvon's elementary school after he'd just been released. Suddenly, Arvon's dad was there, standing just inside the classroom doorway, in baggy jeans, a leather jacket, and a black beanie. Hey, like, he he stopped class for me, like, you know, which was... I've never seen done. Like, you know, like no one really like stop a whole room for me. (laughs) But he made me feel that special. Like, yeah, like I'm here and I'm here for you. Arvon captures those moments through his spoken word. That started when he joined a program for kids with incarcerated parents. His mentors encouraged him to process his experiences through writing. When I saw you, I had hopped on my seat and I ran to you. Couldn't believe my eyes had deceived and expand to you. You own my heart and you was the man. I'm brand to you when I speak now, knowing that I'll be a man to you. My only wish is that I latch you. You hold me across your tattoos. And when I go to kiss you, you'll be a kissing me back too. This cycle, the separations and reunions, continued for years. Until one December morning in 2012. Arvon was 14. It was just shocking. Like, the floor fell from beneath my feet. Your father is dead. Arvon and his mother never got the full story of what happened. They don't know who shot and killed his father at a gas station. All the dreams Arvon had for a future with his dad destroyed. You'll never, ever have the option to to grow with this man. You'll never enjoy a beer with this man. This man will never teach you how to shave. I hate the fact that I'm 19 and without you. I hate the fact that when I got ready for prom that there was nothing without you. I hate the fact that there's no unity like when I entered puberty. I was going through some changes and neglect from you was new to me. Arvon says losing his dad made him wrap a thick coat around his heart to prevent people from getting too close. Well, it teaches me to keep my distance, um, even though like that's really not the most healthiest choice, but it's the safest choice. And sometimes it goes into people who just want to open doors for me and, you know, be mentors for me. It looks like me shutting them down. Like, it looks like me cussing them out. It looks like me telling them my mind simply because they trying to act like my daddy. The man Arvon is modeling himself after is gone. And part of me feels empty simply because, like, I don't, I don't have a forecast of what life can look like for me. Some people could look at their parents and see their future. I don't have that. But he's making his way. Even though he's just 19, he works full-time at a nonprofit for people with disabilities. He's a student at San Francisco State University, and he wins awards for his spoken word. It's funny how I made your English, but you're left with the sentence. You were subject to the prejudice, a predicate instance. Like you're hearing you be going in an instant. Be consistent. I write because I loved you the most. Now it's resentment. Arvon's still not sure how to feel about his dad. He doesn't know what his dad was up to that landed him behind bars so many times. But Arvon's starting to see his dad, this man who never finished high school, as someone just trying to provide for his kids. Arvon sees that happening all around him. Recently, He's seen it on the U.S.-Mexico border. Parents going to any extreme to make a better life for their kids, but then winding up apart from them. Like, circumstances may be different, but the story is the same. Like, and the outcome is, is, is no different until someone decides to say enough is enough. 
In both cases, Arvon Williams says he sees a larger system that keeps parents and kids apart. He says some young men fill in the gap left by their incarcerated fathers with the streets or drugs. Some of them are dead because of it. Arvon hopes the choices he's made can model a different path forward. Arvon's relationship with his dad was joyous, painful, and confusing. But along the way, it helped Arvon discover a powerful tool, his voice. I hope that at the end of this, you feel no shame. I'm committing you for neglect. It may seem so strange, but I doubt you. I had to figure it out too. In the next life, I'll be twice as bold, ready for round two. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. Arvon is just one of the Californians we've been talking to for our series about the lasting effects on kids when they're separated from their parents. Next week, the story of a 97-year-old man still traumatized by the day he last saw his family. Without saying goodbye, without a hug, a kiss, it happened so sudden. Separated, ripped away my mother and my brother. That's next week on the California Report magazine. Here we go! And now to the Sierra, to a grove of pine trees on a hot afternoon, where seven young men are given a challenge. The goal here is for your group to all get on the box and have no part of your body touching the ground. Sounds like summer camp. Team building exercises, getting grounded in nature. But this place in Placer County is not your typical camp. About half the young people here are immigrants and refugees. Reporter Eli Wirtshafter tagged along with one of them, a lanky 19-year-old named Ablel Alamu. Ablel's counselor calls the group together to strategize. How will they all get on the box? Ablel takes control. I'm going on his shoulder so that we can have more space. Ablel jumps on top of his friend's shoulders, and for five seconds, the whole group hangs onto their spot on the box. They did it. Ablel is from Eritrea. When he was nine, his family faced government extortion. They fled to neighboring Ethiopia and were placed in a refugee camp. He says that there, they were barely treated like humans. Like, it's not for people, for real. It's just, like, really hot, and, like, you don't even have a clothes to wear. In 2014, the U.S. allowed Ablal's family to come here as refugees, and they flew into Oakland. When I just came here, I realized that I felt, like, uh, so lonely. Because I didn't know, like, you know, like, the people don't talk to you, or they just, like, be quiet. With almost no background in English, Ablal started at Oakland International High School, where all the students come from immigrant families. He says he sat quietly in the back of the class. All I said is okay or yes or no. Ablal didn't think he'd graduate high school. Then, after junior year, he got invited to spend a week in the woods west of Lake Tahoe at this place called the California Global Youth Peace Summit. You're going to learn English, you're going to have fun, and you're going to communicate with people. It wasn't until the bus ride up that he found out the bad news. He wouldn't be able to use his cell phone for the whole week. Wow, I was going to cry the first time, but, and then in the middle, it was like, I don't even remember my phone. 
part of the summit is your typical summer camp activities. Ropes courses, team building games, free time at the pool. But there's also this. Each one of you is going to go out into nature as an individual. It's day two of the summit. The camp's founder, Vanessa Stone, gathers the youth in a circle. And she sends everyone out into the woods to find objects for a group art installation. It can be a stick. It can be pine cones. It could be... She tells each person, this object should represent something in their life that they want to let go of. So if it feels like a heavy burden, then find a big, heavy thing. If it feels like a gnarly anger, then find something that looks like gnarly anger. This kind of activity, introspection, talking together about life traumas, is really at the heart of the summit, which Stone began five years ago. You know, my family is from Colombia, South America. Um, I had a unique perspective in that way, and also, honestly, I was just a, I was a young person who was struggling. Stone never went to college, but she became her own kind of teacher. She went around the world offering something like spiritual leadership, something like group therapy. I was traveling and doing projects and encountering extraordinary young people from really remote places and going, gosh, how do I get them all together in a conversation? started to realize there's a global community in our backyard through the refugee population and, and the immigrant population. This year, 48 young people came to the summit here in California. About half are immigrants. The rest were born in the U.S. I wanted our American youth to have direct access to the countries they read about in the news, to have face-to-face personal contact. The immigrants in the group all attend for free. The summit is kept alive through private donations and a lot of volunteer labor. Barely any of the staff and counselors on site are paid. Mikaya, push me. Ablal is chilling in a hammock with one of the American counselors. Looking out the sky and thinking about ourselves and relaxing. In his first year at the summit, Ablal had to figure out how to talk with people who spoke different languages. Even though we don't speak uh, English, but like we kind of communicate uh, by uh, our hands. They would just point at that thingy over there. Or like, oh, you know that thingy thingy, you know what I'm saying? Like, what thingy thingy are you talking about? I was like, Learning how to communicate without words made Ablo more confident. His English got better. And in group circles at camp, he would reveal even his most personal struggles. You're like, you're sharing the idea, so you kind of have a peace in your, with yourself. Last year, when Ablal came back from his first summit, he felt like he had transformed. Uh, after the summit, I feel more care about uh, my family and all the other people too. I was like, I feel more care uh, than I used to. This year, Ablal graduated high school. He's going to start classes at community college this fall. But before that, he's savoring his last days at the California Global Youth Peace Summit. I don't want to go home. A bunch of campers gather around a picnic bench, practicing a song that they're writing. Ablel is tapping along on a cowbell. No one singing how to turn this mess around. For Ablel Alamu, who ran from his own country, whose family had to fight their way into the U.S., the summit is a place that feels safe, that feels like home. For The California Report, I'm Eli Werchafter in Placer County. So both hands on the trolley. Don't forget to cannonball. Okay. There you go. Woo!
every week on the California Report magazine, we want to take you on a road trip to visit the places and meet the people who make the Golden State unique. Growing up on the border, we all make fun of immigration because it's a way of coping with a strange reality. We can't talk about things like the Me Too movement without talking about the ways in which society says women's bodies should be treated. Dear Mr. President, I believe that transgender people don't have enough policies that help protect their rights. I regret it every day. I had the American dream and I lost it. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to our podcast. Look for the California Report magazine and the bear wearing the earbuds wherever you get your podcasts. The California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Last week, we brought you a story about a Berkeley-born movie star who's made it really big in Asia. It's like Beatlemania. They want a piece of you. But when Daniel Wu walks down the street here in California, hardly anybody recognizes him. As an Asian-American actor, he's had a hard time getting cast here in the U.S. It's also a battle for Asian-American women trying to make it in Hollywood. There are so few parts that aren't sexist or stereotyped. Now we're going to meet two young actresses trying to change that. Their story comes from Joanne Yang, a student from the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. It's part of our series on whether the California dream is alive for people from different walks of life. Oh, it's so good to see you. Angie Kim and Amy Park are actresses. They're catching up at a coffee shop, talking about a voiceover gig they did together for a superhero movie. They barely have one line each. You heard my voice? Just once. Because, did you watch it? No, not yet. Oh, okay, I heard your voice once, but um, over <laughs> our, like, talking scenes, they put a uh, musical on, on top. Oh, so you can't hear any of the voices, actually, unfortunately. Yeah. But I heard your voice. Angie and Amy get together a lot since they first met at an audition. They try to support each other as they struggle to deal with the limited roles reserved for Asian-American actors. Hey guys, my name is Amy Park. I'm 5 of 5. I'm from U.S. And Amy's a Korean-American from New Jersey with a background in theater. She moved to California to pursue her career as an actress. But it wasn't easy. Actually, sometimes I would get auditions that I need to be a stereotypical Asian person with an accent or something. And it would just play solely on the stereotype. Amy turns down any roles that require a fake Asian accent. Listen to this one from a recent film called Premium Rush, where a Korean-American fakes a Chinese accent. I don't understand. What don't you understand? Why someone who says he's an IRS agent has a New York City police detective's badge. I would get very upset because I feel as though if I take on that role, I'm not doing justice. And as someone who is an Asian-American born in the States, I actually don't know how to do an accent, an Asian accent. So that would feel inauthentic for me. Angie's a Korean-American raised in San Diego. She worked as a paralegal until she realized she had a passion for acting. But she couldn't avoid typecast roles either. You know, the sexy temptress or the villainess. And I get a lot of those roles because I'm Asian and they think I'm exotic. I'm a private investigator. For a TV show called Cry Wolf, Angie played a mistress wearing black lingerie and a pink silk robe. Here's a scene where Angie confronts her lover's wife. Calm down, all right? She had no idea that her husband was cheating. I love him. We love each other. Oh, you love her? Did you love her? Did you love her? Okay. Really? Uh, that was you love her? Turn the camera off! 
The auditions we get are so far and few in between that if there's one, we all just kind of swarm towards it. And, you know, we all want it so bad, even if it's just for one line. One day in her apartment, Angie's scrolling through a casting website. Carrie, model, pretty, chic, her hair falling slowly around her shoulders, makeup subtle, glowing, loves cocaine. For the audition, she sets up the camera and looks into the lens. <clears throat> you don't have to run away. You want to get high? What's your name? For decades, female Asian Americans couldn't say no to playing the temptress. Guys, are, are you reading what I'm reading? It's literally just stereotypes. One day after a casting call, Amy vents to Angie over the phone. Sexy Asian doll face. Must have a small frame. Full nudity required. Okay. Asian accent preferred. We were very frustrated with the stereotypes and the way we are portrayed on media. And so Angie and I thought, we need to do something about this. Amy and Angie have started creating their own roles. They're making short skits on social media to encourage Asian Americans to embrace their identities. Here's a short piece on Instagram called Surround Yourself with Those Who Are Crazy About You. Okay, guys. What I miss? Oh, you know, just telling her my crazy secret dreams. She wants to write a book that's going to be adapted into a movie and then become a millionaire. These skits have inspired Amy to take things further. Can we have everyone's attention? Thank you. Amy stands on stage with her fellow co-producers, Anjani and Rachel, at a small gallery in Little Tokyo. This is the trailer launch party for their new series. Um, in a nutshell, Lady Part follows five Asian American women in Los Angeles, and it's just them living their lives. And we are especially shining light on issues such as mental health, abuse, in all, of, in all of its forms. Yeah, in all of its forms, um, the LGBTQ community, sexuality, family dynamics. We're pretty much just shedding a light and uh, highlighting all the issues that have been swept under under the rug for so long in our community. I mean, it's time. The series know? is called Lady Parts, and. Uh, it's pretty much Master of None meets Girls meets Big Little Lies, but with five female Asian Americans. There's a Korean American, a Vietnamese American, a Filipino American, an Indian American, and a half Japanese, half Irish American. You don't see that kind of portrayal of diverse Asian Americans, diverse diversity within diversity, especially on media at all. So we truly feel as though this is groundbreaking. I'm very excited. So, who am I? You're part of a bigger story. I solely came to California for the Asian American community. And so with this community, we can change the way media perceives people. Amy and Angie hope that Hollywood is listening. For the California Report, I'm Joanne Yang in Los Angeles. That story is part of a collaboration with the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Working with us here on the California Report magazine, students spent a semester examining what the California dream means to people across Los Angeles. We've been getting so many amazing letters from you, our listeners, for a series we're calling Letter to My California Dreamer. We're asking you to write a letter addressed to someone in your family who came to the Golden State with a dream. This week's letter is to Maria Cervantes, who came to California in the early 1970s. It comes from her son, Javier. Dear Mom, when I think of the California dream, 
I think of you, Maria Mojaro Cervantes. You grew up in central Mexico in the state of Zacatecas. It was a harsh place. You grew up very poor. Higher education was not an option, and there were no jobs. The only way to survive was to grow whatever you could and barter for farm animals. You had food and shelter, but that was it. No future, no chance to rise above your circumstances. You wanted more for your life. When you were only 17, you heard that some cousins of yours left to go up north and now had better lives. One of these cousins told you that maybe if you went, you could stay with an uncle. You wanted to go, but you were scared. But you were more afraid to stay. How would you even get there? You had no idea. You didn't know English, not to mention it was illegal to enter, and the trip would be dangerous. Your parents vehemently objected to the idea. They were expecting you to marry a farmer and have a family as all women did there. You scraped together all the money you could and borrowed money from your friends, and then you were off. You made it to Tijuana and got a hold of a human smuggler, a coyote. He hid you in the trunk of his car and drove you across the border, dropping you off at a bus station in San Diego. When you finally got to your uncle's house in San Francisco, he helped you find a job in housekeeping at a hotel in Oakland. You worked brutal 12-hour days. In this new land, you were mistreated looked down on, made to feel worthless. Although you suffered, you had faith that this would lead to a better life. You remained in a land that treated you as a second-class citizen. You could have gone home and brought all of this to an end, but you believed in your heart that your life would get better. Today, you are a U.S. citizen, a homeowner, and a successful entrepreneur. To pick up and leave Mexico to carve out a life for yourself in another country is unimaginable to me. But you, a teenager from a small farm town, did it and showed me courage that I could not believe. That is a true California dream. Love, your son, Javier Cervantes. Next week, a letter to great-great-great-grandparents. I wish I knew when you came to California and how you two managed to make it all the way from China to North San Juan in the Sierra foothills sometime in the mid-1800s. Did you come for work, business, gold? We'd love to hear your letter to one of your family's California dreamers. Maybe even you were the first in your family to come to California with a dream. We've got a form you can fill out on our website, californiareport.org. Take a few minutes to tell us your story, and we might ask you to record it to air on the California Report magazine. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Nina Thorson. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Howard Gelman. Special thanks this week to Karen Lowe and Sandy Tolan at USC. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our online producer is David Marks. Our intern is Marisol Medina Cadena. Our editorial team also includes Bianca Taylor, Susie Racho, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Have a great weekend. This is the California Report magazine. Your state? 
your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.